We often talk about how much the U.S. stock market hates uncertainty, but the U.S. healthcare system and the insurance industry are definitely not big fans either. The passage of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, in 2010 ushered in expansion of Medicaid, greater access to commercial insurance coverage and essential care for millions of Americans, and funding for numerous initiatives to move healthcare delivery to be more value-driven. Now, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, but U.S healthcare policy seem to be veering in a new direction. So now what? Even though the first congressional attempt under the Trump administration to repeal and replace Obamacare fizzled, another attempt or effort is brewing, or maybe now some people are stewing in the House. And what else might chip away at the ACA and reforms in the meantime? We're going to step into this morass with some expert help and help from you on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, our online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here for you live, bi-weekly, and after the show on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, I want to assure you that we're not just going to put on a policy wonk hat for this program, but we're also going to think hard with the help of a terrific health system leader about the beacon of the triple aim and how that can serve as a badly needed compass right now. We're also going to talk about the voices and stories that need to become more part of the public discussion. So to introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He'll remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. Great, Madge. Thanks. Uh, A few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few items that people have, uh, that a few ways that people have connected to IHI, uh, WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. The phone number is on the slides. If you experience any audio issue, please Please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know their numbers on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've put a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve your listener experience here on WIHI. Please take a quick moment after our program to fill out the survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. And we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. You're welcome to tweet during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can get involved in the conversation. And speaking of the chat, I did start off by asking a question and um, it was really wondering uh, from any of you, what's on your mind about healthcare policy right now? Uh, What are you thinking about? Uh, What kinds of things would you like further clarification? Of. All right, two introductions now. Joining by phone, John Chassar is the president and CEO of GBMC Healthcare. That stands for Greater Boston, excuse me, Greater Boston, Greater Baltimore. I must be thinking about baseball today. Greater Baltimore Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. A pediatrician, Dr. Chassar's present work is in transforming his organization to be better able to deliver higher value by creating better health, better care, and lower cost with more joy for those providing the care. So welcome, John Chassar. Hi, Madge. It's great to be with you. Fantastic. Also on the phone, because he's a busy guy, even if he might be in Boston, we have John McDonough. He's a professor of practice at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. Between 2008 and 2010, John McDonough served as senior advisor on national health reform to the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. He worked on the writing and passing of the Affordable Care Act, and welcome to you too, John. 
Thank you. Great to be here, Matt. Now, both our panelists have rich backgrounds and knowledge from which they speak, so do check out their full bios. Uh, John McDonough also has a blog that we capture in our resources. Uh, Vicki may uh, go ahead and, and type that one in so you can uh, stay with him uh, even beyond today's show. So we're going to start off with John McDonough. And um, we're going to start with Washington, because where else should we begin? And what's currently going on with efforts to resuscitate, I guess I might say, the American Health Care Act. Things have been changing daily, somewhat by the hour, but definitely daily. So John gets the important job of telling us where things stand right now. John. Thanks, Madge, and, and thanks, John Chassar, and my friends at IHI, and everybody participating. It's great to be here with you. Uh, so let's start just at the really big picture and try to think about the moment we're in right now in the United States in terms of health reform. And one of my friends at the school says to me that the acid test of any national health reform occurs when there is a change in administration, when any reform is done in any country in the world and a president or a prime minister or minister of health is responsible for it, it stands and then the government at some point leaves and then you find out how real it is. And so this is really the acid test, the moment of truth for the whole family of reforms that were done as part of the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. healthcare system. And when we get through this process that we are in right at this very moment, we will have a great, greater sense and a greater appreciation of what in the Affordable Care Act is likely to endure. So one thing, for example, if you caught sight of Jimmy Kimmel, the talk show host, the other evening on his show, and he gave a 10-minute account of his newborn baby's uh, surg- life-important surgery and the importance in the statement he gave about pre-existing conditions and the incredible response he has received all over the country, that tells you that a cornerstone reform in the ACA, namely guaranteed issue and preventing pre-existing conditions, exclusions from re-entering the system, has a lot of legs and a lot of stature and is likely to stay. Those are some of the things that we learned. What's happening just right now, so once again for the third time, The U.S. House of Representatives, the Republican leaders, Paul Ryan and his team, are attempting to put through the full house their American Health Care Act, or AHCA. Uh, They pulled it from the floor in late March because they did not have the votes because they were facing opposition from moderates in the Republican caucus and more hardline conservatives. Uh, they tried to bring it up a couple of weeks ago and failed, and so now they're back at it this time. They made a concession to the Republicans in the past week that gives states the option of varying from various protections in the ACA, including guaranteed issue, including community rating, including essential health benefits that have alarmed many people particularly on the more moderate side. And so there was, over the past several days, a revolt among the moderate Republicans. And it looked, until a couple of hours ago, as though it was heading down in flames. But just within the past 24 hours, uh, the Republican leader, Speaker Ryan et al., have agreed to put in an additional $8 billion into um, into uh, high-risk pools for people who otherwise would not be able to get coverage. And that brought back into the yes vote column several important members who had deserted it over the past week, particularly uh, Congressman Upton from uh, Michigan, um, as well as a staunch uh, Trump supporter, Congressman Long from, um, from Missouri. And so uh, right now, it, the, the, the betting is that it looks like it may have the votes to squeeze through. Uh, we don't know. There are still a good number of undecided, uh, but there's a lot of pressure. Uh, one of the things that we know is that the likelihood that the whatever gets through the House would pass intact in the United States Senate is considered to be quite remote. If the Senate chooses to take this up, 
and there's no assurance either way at this point, uh, they would certainly be doing major changes to what came through the House uh, in ways that may make it easier to pass or make it harder to pass when it would return to the House of Representatives. So we don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. It is changing literally from hour to hour. Uh, we know that the AHCA would make some very dramatic changes to the current system. Uh, it would cut an estimated $850 billion out of the Medicaid program over the next 10 years. Uh, it would change the fundamental nature of Medicaid from an entitlement program to a program that relies on the annual appropriations process and so is subject to far more drastic changes on a year-to-year basis. Uh, we know that the health insurance marketplace or exchange structure for folks who need help buying insurance, who can buy private insurance with financial support through the ACA, uh, would be substantially revised under the AHCA. Uh, right now, the subsidies that are available to people over Medicaid eligibility from 138 to 400% of poverty, those subsidies are based upon your income and your ability to pay the cost of health insurance where you live. And so people who have less income and are in higher insurance cost states get more help than people who are not high or are not lower income uh, and live in lower cost states. Um, that structure would fundamentally change under the AHCA instead of being based upon income and ability to pay would be based upon your age. So people in their 20s would get a $2,000 flat tax credit in their 30s, 2,500 in their 40s, 3,000 in their 50s, 3,500 and in their 60s up to $4,000 or there was an amendment to raise that as well up to about 4,500. So those are the those are the big major changes. There are many many more that are in there. Um, the last thing I'll just say is that uh, I think it's no exaggeration to say that the House leadership has been pursuing the AHCA against some unfavorable winds. You look at the slide that's up there right now. This is the most recent Kaiser Health tracking poll that shows that over the past period there has been a significant flip in terms of the favorability of the Affordable Care Act rising. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the AHCA has been scored by the Congressional Budget Office as resulting in the loss of coverage for about 24 million Americans over the next 10 years. Uh, the, the legislation is opposed by nearly every major healthcare stakeholder in American society as just top lines, the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, AARP, and that's just for starters. So running against a lot of strong currents, um, and, uh, and, and that is why there is so much attention and so much disruption and concern um, about this. And could go on and on more, but we've got a lot of uh, conversation and back and forth, and so let me stop there and uh, and turn it back to, to Matt. Thanks so much, uh, John McDonough. And uh, you'll get to know their voices, even if their first names are both John John McDonough and John Chassar. And John McDonough, I really appreciate uh, so much uh, the way you were able to, you know, give us that high level, kind of up to the minute uh, of, of what's going on right now. Really, really helpful. So John Chassar uh, from GBMC. Let me turn to you. Uh, one of the things we talked about when we were planning today's program is the level of distraction uh, that all of this is uh, uh, creating, uh, certainly for healthcare system leaders. That's not the only thing, uh, but the ability uh, to plan and count on certain things and innovations and changes uh, uh, has kind of been roiling through the whole industry. So I wanted to start off by asking John Chassar to say, how has that uncertainty uh, impacted you and your healthcare system? Thanks. In the line with so many IHI people, it's, it's not 
any new news to anyone that we've been in a fascinating time and we've been working on the triple aim. Very few of the American people really understand what the Affordable Care Act has uh, brought to being, but CMS and CMMI have been incentivizing change in, in the right direction towards the triple aim. And uh, my organization was among the first to uh, here in Maryland to start an accountable care organization to embrace uh, accountability and the notion of the patient-centered medical home. And like many of my colleagues on the on the phone, we now have disease registries. We operate our primary care offices uh, to be more available to patients. We have extended hours. We've embedded care managers. Uh, we use uh, social media to get to our patients. We've recently embedded both psychiatrists and and uh, behavioralists into the patient-centered medical home. Uh, I might also say that here in Maryland, we have a waiver that is actually a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and our hospitals are on global budgets, which have been liberating to those that are interested in not just generating services, but in spending the resources to generate uh, the value of the, the triple aim. Uh, we, we, re, we have, um, uh, my company has the largest hospice, uh, company in the mid Atlantic and, uh, we, uh, are now giving people choice in, in, uh, end of life and, uh, and that takes, uh, that takes resources. Uh, we also now have a program called Support Our Elders where we're sending geriatric nurse practitioners to the home of frail elders that are not hospice eligible but are uh, too frail to actually make it to the doctor's office. And um, I, I know that all of my colleagues are, are doing this as well, and, and the good news is that the, the uh, Affordable Care Act set in motion incentives to help us do that. So as everyone can imagine, all of the changes that, that my colleague, uh, John Number 1, uh, was just discussing make us a little nervous because we don't want to lose the momentum uh, that we've uh, that we've started. So I guess my question is, we'll get into uh, maybe we'll visualize some of what you've been talking about because I think part of what you uh, described that you wanted to get across to folks today was really how to stay focused uh, in, in such a time. And so my question to you is, is that challenging? Uh, given, uh, you know, now it looks like or could be that the House effort might succeed and on we go. And we still don't know what will happen over on the Senate side, but it does create uh, an unstable uh, situation, to say the least, even if the law still stands. Does that impact you? Does that affect you, John? Yes, it, it does. Um, and uh, we we have committed to, to stay the course, do the right thing. Um, I, I'm uh, John McDonough didn't say this, but I have a lot of uh, friends across the political spectrum, and they argue about a lot of things. But one thing that uh, my friends are united on, no matter what their uh, political uh meaning is, is that the country would be better off with better health outcomes, better care experience at lower cost. So there is a, um, we can unite, I think, around those concepts. So uh, we've decided to stay the course and uh, keep working as hard as we can in that direction, as I know the rest of my, my colleagues have. And uh, I also think that the next chapter has to be Healthcare leaders maybe making transformation move faster within their own span of control, but also taking more time to educate business leaders in particular about what is really at stake here and what the, the transformation has meant to them. Uh, you know, what we're seeing in Maryland is that uh, per, uh, per employee healthcare costs, if you leave uh, high-cost drugs aside, have been pretty flat here over the past few years, and I would maintain that that is at least in part due to the drive for value. 
So I want to ask something. Uh, as I, um, we're sort of flashing up on the screen here, some of the things you shared with us uh, that you know depict moving in the direction that you're you're talking about uh, in the health system. The colon cancer screening rates. We looked at. Uh, you had been referencing all these uh, greater um, hours and availability for people to get into primary care. Then there's uh, patient satisfaction. Uh, John, you could maybe put that one up. That's, I think, the third of his slides there uh, around, whoops, there we go, uh, patient satisfaction, overall scores uh, going in the right direction. Uh, then we've got things around uh, what's happening with the Medicare shared savings. Um, you sure. can download all these slides uh, when you're done with today's show, and you'll find them on the website. So in a way, we're all used to looking at these good, <laughs> you know, th- this is what it means to be working on the triple aim, to be taking advantage, I guess, also you were saying, of the opportunities in your state, Maryland, but also uh, CMMI and federal programs. What's the story that needs to go along with that? Uh, if, if you had your moment <laughs> in Congress, uh, they've decided they need to hear from you tomorrow, John Chassar, and because uh, uh, they're not sure they're going in the right direction here. What would you say? Because what does it have to yeah. do with insurance coverage, for heaven's sakes? Yeah, I think it would say uh, if, uh, first of all, uh, I believe health care is a right, and uh, I believe that the people we are serving in our community have a right to the very best care. And uh, the Congress should know that we spend uh, 40% per capita more than any other country in the world on health care. So there's a tremendous opportunity as long as we can stay the course, redesign our systems, put the incentives in the right place, and keep moving on my colon cancer screen there, if you had asked me five years ago, how is your company doing at colon cancer screening, I probably would have responded, oh, I don't know, pretty good. And, well, that's not really the answer of a scientist or a leader. Today, I can tell you that of our 81,000 advanced primary care patients, there's 19,000 of them that, according to the evidence, should have been screened And we've screened 13,000 of them. And there's no argument that colorectal cancer screening saves lives. It's one of the few public health, uh, one of the few medical screening interventions that is absolutely life-saving. Now I know, and, and we have people in our primary care homes that every single day look at this metric and reach out to the individuals. Now, if some of those individuals didn't have health insurance, That would be an immediate problem, but an even bigger conversation is CMMI is incentivizing me to know precisely where we are here and the community benefits from that fact alone. So if you were to be told, and then I'll bring John McDonough back in, well, John Chassar, it looks like, you know, there's great things happening in your system uh, can't those uh, continue? And we're not going to touch some of those other programs. Uh, we're, our focus now is really on the insurance side of this. Uh, most of all, uh, we think, you know, Medicaid can become more leaner and left to the states, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel that healthcare leaders have some challenges about how to make the connections uh, between the improvement work you're doing and some of these uh, bigger issues around uh, health insurance and access and coverage in this country? Well, not to sound uh, cute, but it's complicated. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, health care is, uh, the Affordable Care Act itself is very complicated, and I think trying to get the, the man on the street who's worried about his or her own life to try to understand all these interrelationships is is quite a trick. But I I do think that we uh, we owe it to ourselves and to the people we serve in the country to make a cogent argument that the status quo prior to the Affordable Care Act is untenable. It's it's unfair and it's un-American to leave some of our citizens behind. And uh, we need to stand united to make sure everyone is covered. And I also think 
we're at a moment in time where uh, there's this danger that what you believe is truth and uh, you can just say it and, and it, it's supposedly true when in reality the experts know how if we use community rating, we could cover everybody, uh, but uh, we can't do it if we keep separating these buckets and then uh, not incentivizing the healthy uh, to have insurance. Thank you so much, and we'll continue to uh, talk with you uh, th- through the Q&A. Uh, John Chassar, I want to go back to John McDonough now. As somebody, uh, I barely really talked about the amount of time you've been uh on Capitol Hill, you were also on Beacon Hill uh, here in Massachusetts and are no stranger to talking to uh, legislators uh, f- from <laughs> from all vantage points as a colleague and uh, with a, a policy organization or an advocacy organization. So, John, I'm I am curious about this question. If, the, if there's a sense among legislators, we'll talk about Congress most of all right now, that somehow all these innovations the ways in which GBMC is moving in that direction, that somehow they can count on healthcare leaders sort of separating uh, themselves from some of these other uh, really thornier issues uh, about uh, the federal government's uh, role in making sure people have health insurance. What do you think? I, I don't buy it because if we just look at the response from the hospital community to the American Healthcare Act. I mean, that did not address the major delivery system reforms in the ACA, like accountable care organizations, bundled payment. It's really focusing on the coverage side, though, in a serious way. And the hospital industry, not just American Hospital Association, but Catholic Health Association, Federation of American Hospitals, has been highly aggressive in terms of putting forward the ill effects of the AHCA in terms of the healthcare system. Um, it's inconceivable that a hospital will not feel adverse impacts if all of a sudden there are 24 million Americans without coverage and a large share of them showing up at the emergency departments and hospital doors looking for some kind of services and unable to pay. Um, most people don't know or don't recall, but the uh, hospital community in creating the ACA agreed to take over 10 years between 2010 and 2019, $155 billion less in Medicare reimbursements to be part of the financing package to allow the ACA to happen in the first place. Um, ironically, The AHCA that is being advanced right now eliminates a whole host of tax increases that were put on the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, medical devices, and wealthy high-income households. It eliminates all those taxes, and yet it leaves in place all of the cuts that the hospital industry took Now it's about $350 billion, 2016 to 2025, leaves those cuts in place, even though the money was given up in the first place to help secure coverage. So uh, that's one of the reasons why um, uh, the hospital industry, I think, is pretty angry about this legislation. And I have to say, I totally concur with their anger and outrage about how this legislation is being handled, because it's really a raw deal for hospitals. And to what extent uh, do you feel the uh, various programs uh, I can, we can put up there? Uh, boy, I, I forgot we have John Gothier here too, our other John. Uh, the <laughs> Medicare shared savings slides, I want to share some of those uh, that we've got here from John Chassar. The programs that uh, Medicare in particular uh, has been behind, CMMI, MACRA, which continues to be talked about as that starts to unfold, do those seem relatively protected? So it's interesting. So there's two major components to the ACA, the insurance expansions through Medicaid and through the exchanges, the private coverage. And then all of the delivery system reforms that you mentioned. 
And for the most part, the delivery system reforms that are mostly in Title III of the ACA have proven not to be controversial. And in fact, in the 2015 NACRA law that eliminated the Medicare physician payment formula called the sustainable growth rate, uh, that structure, which was put forward by a Republican House and Senate, actually embraces the delivery system reforms that were included in the ACA. And so it appears that they are subject to all kinds of modifications, as we're seeing going on right now with bundled payments and accountable care organizations and so forth. But fundamentally, the uh, Republicans have embraced those and are not looking to get rid of them. Probably the only thing right now that is really on the watch list in terms of potential elimination is something called the IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, uh, the mechanism that can create potentially um, uh, cuts to Medicare provider payments um, if Medicare spending goes above a certain level. It hasn't gone above that target rate since 2010, although there are expectations that we're going to see IPAB triggered in 2017 for the first time. Um, in the spending bill, Congress, that Congress sent to President Trump that he, that he signed or going to sign, um, in that bill, they eliminated funding for IPAB. However, the way the statute is written is that if there is no IPAB board, the responsibility to make those cuts falls in the lap of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And so probably the part of the whole delivery system reform piece that is going to be most controversial, at least over the next several months, is, is the fate of the IPAB. Okay, thank you very much. John Chassar, is there anything you want to add before we open things up uh, to questions? Uh, folks are starting to uh, get them in here, and uh, I, I uh, have a few in my back pocket. Is there anything you want to uh, add before we go to there, to go to the uh, chat? No, just just a minor detail that I know you and John both know that MACRA is was its own separate legislation and is uh, it had bipartisan support and uh, I I appreciate John McDonough's uh, comments that the the uh, hospital association the um, American Hospital Association and all local hospital associations are quite upset with the uh, Republican uh, bill and its uh, not restoring the funds that were given up to get the AHA's support for ACA. Okay, thank you very much. All right, your turn uh, to um, put some of your questions and concerns to our panelists today. Uh, I did ask at the beginning what's on your mind about healthcare policy. I'm curious uh, if you feel like chatting in what level of distraction uh, this presents in your own organization or worry. Uh, one of the early uh, questions that we got had to do with whether people should be preparing in some way uh, as an organization for uh, less money from Medicaid. But John Gothier wanted to remind everybody very quickly about how to make sure we see all their questions. Yeah, uh, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when uh, addressing them in the chat. So one of the – thanks, John. Uh, one of the questions is whether – how health systems should – uh, strategically plan uh, around Medicaid funding. Uh, the the bills, the laws, they're, 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 you know, we've got a, a journey still here in terms of what's going on. But uh, any thoughts on that regarding uh, Medicaid? I think this is really has been talked about uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, there's so much that's changing in Medicaid uh, in many innovative ways as well. Uh, John McDonough, should I start with you on that one, uh, kind of what you're thinking about Medicaid no matter what? Well, so the big, the big uh, gap in Medicaid right now, of course, is that there are still 19 states that have not implemented the ACA Medicaid expansion. And so an estimated 3 to 5 million really low-income Americans who could benefit from having insurance coverage who can't because their states have not embraced the expansion 
talking big, the big ones, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Wisconsin, um, uh, among other states. Uh, the ACA was written so that all 50 states had to expand Medicaid on January 1st, 2014, but the 2012 Supreme Court decision on the ACA ruled that that expansion had to be an option for states. That's one of the tremendous gaps. Um, I would just note there's something really important also that people don't appreciate about the AHCA that's being debated right now. You know, it used to be said, if you've seen one state Medicaid program, you've seen one state Medicaid program, because they all varied in so many different ways, particularly in terms of eligibility and enrollment and re-enrollment procedures and requirements. And one of the things that the ACA did that is highly important and completely unrecognized is it created really national standards for eligibility and enrollment. So you didn't face extra obstacles if you lived in one state versus another in terms of enrolling in Medicaid or staying in. Uh, one of the things that's up for grabs in the Republican legislation before the House right now is that it eliminates all of those national standards and turns all of the eligibility enrollment functions back to the states. Some states try to make it as easy as possible for Medicaid-eligible folks to get it and stay, and some states, as a budget control strategy, make it as difficult as possible for people to enroll and stay in. And that has a real significant impact in terms of hospitals, community health centers, and other folks who rely on the ability to get folks who are Medicaid eligible enrolled as easily as possible so they can get paid for the care they deliver. So that's something that's very much at stake. It's not something that I think I would change at this point, but it's something that very much needs protection and people need to understand is very much under threat right now. Thanks, John McDonough. John Chassar, what about uh, in the state of Maryland and at GBMC in particular? In what way are you looking at the Medicaid situation? So uh, the Medicaid situation in, in Maryland is so uh, complex. We are a, a blue state with a Republican governor. Uh, we did expand Medicaid. Um, Maryland has the benefit of our waiver, which, again, is with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And that, mu- that waiver brings in our all-payer rate-setting system, so, Medica- so Maryland, I believe, is the only state in the union where all payers pay the same rate. So we have um, hospitals in Maryland that'll be, that are serving 30% Medicaid, 35% Medicaid, and thriving and actually taking in more money than, than uh, Blue Cross pays to other hospitals. Not true of physician payment, so it's very complex. So if the um, the enabling legislation for CMMI remains, uh, Maryland believes that there's a good chance it would hold on to its waiver and the money that is flowing into the state to help uh, pay for the Medicaid expansion would still be there. If the, if the CMMI ceased to exist, we have an immediate problem because the agency uh, that we have contracted with is CMMI and no one knows what would happen then. Thank you. Are there uh, contingency plans, uh, or I don't know, if if somebody was asking you what advice would you give to health systems in in other states even? Uh, (laughs) uh, I know you're very humble, but is there any uh, advice you would give? Well, I, I think people should do what they should do anyway, which is to drive the waste out and try to make the care as affordable as possible. Then, then we are, we're doing our immediate job uh, for the community. And then I think we need to stand united on the notion that uh, healthcare is a right and uh, we should do what we can to get the, the legislators to do what they need to do. Okay, thank you. All right, let me look at some other questions. There's a big global question about um, if you could rewrite 
<laughs> put out another version of the ACA, what, uh, you know, what would you do, you know, how would you craft it? I'm going to just let that one simmer uh, for just a minute or two. Um, is this possible? Oh, I see. Jennifer's having a, a conversation maybe on the chat, so maybe I'll I'll leave that uh, for the moment. What about, uh, let me ask a, a couple of other questions. In this uh, effort to uh, devolve, as I, maybe that's not quite the right verb or whatever, uh, to the states uh, and this notion uh, that states can become kind of their own laboratories, putting the best spin on it as opposed to states taking things away. I'm just trying to figure out the relationship right now between uh, state political leaders and their own health care systems right now and to what extent uh, the interests are aligned or, or are at odds. Um, in other words, maybe I'll try that one out on John McDonough. I mean, you talk about states that haven't expanded Medicaid, so that might be one dividing line. But in certain states right now, uh, is it has it been easier for governors and political leaders to get the message from their healthcare s- systems, a bit like what they're hearing from John Chassar, uh about what matters right now? I think that every state governor and legislative leader is highly attuned to what they hear from the healthcare delivery system, and is always deeply concerned about what's going on with the Medicaid program because it is almost always the largest or one of the largest expenditures in a state budget. Of course, the federal cost usually dwarfs the state cost, but it is still just so large and every change makes so much difference. Uh, the governors, for the most part, uh, bipartisan with some exceptions, have been opposed to what is being uh, advanced in the HCA right now on Capitol Hill, although there are some like Florida's Rick Scott who are supportive of that. Um, There is always a lot of activity on the part of states in terms of negotiating with the federal government their own separate waivers for their own sets of delivery system reforms that fit with the political culture of the state. So we and and it, then it usually has to conform within the ideological preferences of the administration. So, for example, one change that we are seeing right now is that the Obama administration took a very hard line in the sand where they would refuse any 1115 waiver to the Medicaid program that attempted to impose a work requirement on people who would enroll in the program. Uh, there are a number of conservative states that are eager to impose work requirements on potential Medicaid enrollees. And we see now, for example, Scott Walker in uh, Wisconsin is hoping to impose drug testing requirements on potential Medicaid enrollees. And I think it's fair to say that the new administration under Tom Price and CMS Administrator Seema Verna have a very different attitude toward those kinds of requirements and will look at them um, much more favorably than occurred under the Obama administration. So lots happening and lots changing right now in terms of the politics between the federal government and states over Medicaid. Thank you. A uh, question about prevention uh, and where, uh, it, whether that is also kind of different pr- uh, reforms that had to do or have to do with uh, prevention, whether they're at all vulnerable. Maybe I'll just stay with you, John McDonough, uh, just for a moment on that one. So, so there's one there's one piece that is pertinent to the conversation going on right now. Uh, Title Four of the ACA created a prevention and public health trust fund. Um, that has been, you know, it's not huge. It's in the, it's in the billions of dollars every year. Um, and, uh, it has suffered a series of cuts over what was originally envisioned over the past seven years. Um, and it has been a vitally important way to backstop funding cuts to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
because of the sequestration law passed in 2012 and implemented in 2013. And the AHCA now, before the House of Representatives, would entirely eliminate the Prevention and Public Health Trust Fund. The reductions then in money to CDC would have then immediate consequences in less money flowing from CDC to state public health departments, all 50 states and the territories as well. So something at stake there. Uh, we just as a society pay wonderful, lovely lip service to prevention and public health and then are unable to sustain those good words and commitments over time when the cameras turn off and the spotlights are turned off. And so it's a, it's a discouraging story. There's been progress, but uh, not enough. And even the relatively meager commitments made in the ACA to prevention and public health um, have not been uh, have not been sustained, except for the prevention provisions that were directly tied to coverage. So, for example, the requirement that all clinical preventive services graded A or B by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force must be covered by all health insurance with no copays or deductibles uh, has stood the test of time and people actually like it as well as the women's preventive health services and some other categories of services. Um, all those services are now under threat under the uh, legislation before the House of Representatives. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for pulling that out. That's very helpful. A lot to keep track of. John Chassar, I'm wondering, uh, what's the mood amongst your staff? Uh, if that's not too big a question, um, in terms of their own concerns right now, uh, and whether or not they're also feeling it in any way from their patients. Well, I'd say that our, uh, our primary care teams uh, are always asking me, are we going to stay the course? Uh, you know, I'm a pediatrician. I, I practice general pediatrics in an academic center. I, I can remember trying to take care of uh, inner city children with tremendous uh, uh, social needs without a social worker, without anybody to help me. Uh, now, our teams, as I said, we have embedded behavioralists and, and care managers. So, I think my um, my primary care staff is worried that we won't uh, th- that the the mood will turn away from uh, accountable care and go back to the old way, and they will lose the support. Um, I think that many people in in my uh, organization, as uh, patients and family members, are really concerned about. Uh, the, uh, losing the uh, pre-existing condition um, uh, capabilities of the ACA. Thank you. I would imagine that a lot of people are, you know, we're, we're sort of used to doing things in in a certain way. So I could imagine this is percolating uh, through the organization. And anyone who is with us today, uh, live on the program, if you wanted to share some thoughts about what you're hearing from patients or from staff, uh, that would be interesting uh, to know about. Um, somebody uh, has uh, also uh, asked a uh, kind of an interesting question, which is sort of the theories that are behind some of these things that we see in proposed legislation. Rosemary says tax cuts to business and the highest earners is proposed as a pathway to job creation, which would then lead to more insured workers. How realistic is this theory and how long would you imagine it would take for this to come to fruition? All right, John McDonough, you get that question for the moment anyway. <laughs> well, well, I actually kind of put just posted up an answer to it, which people can read. But Oh, to know, Rosemary. Start, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah. paraphrase. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, so since the late 1970s, the numbers of uninsured in America have just grown and grown and grown. I remember in the late 1980s when Michael Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts running for president, we had about 30 million Americans without health insurance. And by the time the ACA passed, it was up just shy of about 50 million Americans without health insurance. And the numbers just grow. 
in good economic times and bad economic times because the cost of healthcare keeps rising at a rate greater and faster than economic growth and so is constantly facing a growing affordability challenge. Um, since the ACA and particularly since 2014, when the full expansions were implemented, uh, we've seen a historic drop in the number of uninsured in the United States for the first time going below 10%. So I, I don't, uh, so I, the, the theory that, first of all, that, that tax cuts will have that kind of an impact, which trickles down and makes a meaningful impact on coverage. We did not see that with the tax cuts in the 1980s. Uh, we did not see it with the tax cuts in the early 2000s. And I don't expect we would see it in any uh, measurable impact with the, uh, with the new set of tax cuts that are under consideration now. Okay. Thank you. Uh, John Chassar, you're welcome to comment on that. Uh, I might also throw at you the question about uh, whether you imagine uh, some of the ACO work that you're uh, a part of, the Medicare Shared Savings, are you expecting that to continue and that some of the successful pilots that you're aware of, uh, maybe in your own organization and others, uh, will get a chance to expand? Well, I was um, happy to hear John uh, McDonough um, updating us on the fact that the um, the Congress is actually supportive of the work uh, around accountability and, and improving outcomes while uh, driving down the cost. So, um, you know, I think we'll take a wait and see. I would comment on uh, so, so-called uh, stimulus to the economy generating uh, increased coverage. I think what we've seen here locally in, in Maryland is it, even with relatively small cost increases over the last five or six years, those cost increases have all been pushed onto the employee. So we also have this phenomenon of people now with health insurance but still can't afford the coverage because of their co-pays and deductibles. So uh, I think that's another question mark to be thrown into this uh, uh, belief among some that if we could just stimulate the economy, everything would be fine. Definitely. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. John Gothier has just a quick mention. Yeah. I uh, just wanted to uh, mention that if you enjoyed uh, listening to great healthcare leaders like uh, John and John, um, another great place to, uh, to to meet with and learn from great healthcare leaders is IHI's Leadership Alliance, which is a, a dynamic and collaborative learning community for health system executives uh, and their teams. Um, the Leadership Alliance has been together for a couple of years. Um, you can go to IHI.org slash Leadership Alliance and you can learn more about their work. You can read the uh, four-year perspectives that would prospectus that was put out recently. Um, I think it's worth reading. Um, and you can always uh, connect with Alyssa Saraswat. Uh, her uh, email address is on the screen right now and it'll be available in the slides. She's a great person to talk to to learn more about the Leadership Alliance. Thanks, John Gothier. All right, we're going to get to just a couple of final questions. Uh, well, one of them uh, gets to sort of the uh, issues of what the public understands. I think it's been heartening to many uh, that folks are have begun to make some connections. I do think that our healthcare system in many respects to many people seems very Byzantine and very, very hard to penetrate. So to one of the people in the chat, it is very easy uh, to blame Obamacare uh, for perhaps something that actually has nothing to do with Obamacare, uh, but another kind of headache that, um, that may be going on with respect to getting access to services as somebody who is disabled. But we've the final questions maybe that we've got here is that people are asking about how the public uh, can continue to uh, weigh in and understand uh, what's at stake here. Uh, maybe, John McDonough, you might uh, try your hand at that. I'm also curious to what extent uh, somebody is asking uh, we, we certainly hear from insurance companies loud and clear around the exchanges and the marketplaces and whether they're in or out or in what way they would stay in. Uh, I'm curious from John Chassar, from his experience, can he imagine insurers 
uh, even gaining uh, a slightly bigger, uh, broader voice also, uh, you're, you're about somehow creating a fair, rational system. I don't know if that uh, makes any sense. But let me start with John McDonough first and sort of public attitude. Well, so, you know, my, my recommendation for people who really want to stay in touch on a daily basis is to pay attention to the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Commonwealth Fund and sign up for their uh, email alerts. Kaiser sends a wonderful daily health digest that covers all the healthcare news all over the country, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, there are a number of sources that are like that. It's pretty easy, and it's easy to find some free sources that have lots and lots of very useful, helpful information about what's going on. And then stay connected. If you're in the healthcare community, then you're part of either some professional network or some uh, trade association like the Hospital Association. Um, all of those have very important detailed information on a daily basis about what's happening, not just relative to things that you see in the newspaper, but so much of what goes on on a daily basis never gets anywhere close to the more general media and yet is of huge consequence and importance. So, you know, to the extent that you have the bandwidth to do it, there are multiple, multiple sources that are quite helpful and informative and instructive in terms of letting you know what's most important and what you can do that will matter the most in terms of what whatever whatever your interest is in in all of this. And just remember that, you know, whenever this episode is over, uh, life goes on. And the work of policy development and policy change continues unabated, even if the public, even if it falls off the public radar screen. So it's good to put yourself in a position where you really are informed almost on a daily basis if you're delivering care or somewhere near the care delivery system. Thank you so much, John McDonough. And I do want to encourage people to, uh, you know, get heads up. Uh, you can uh, sign up for uh, John McDonough's uh, regular blog, Health Stew, which is definitely keeping me informed. And it's uh, very gracious of you to give your time uh, on today's WIHI. John Tassar, uh, maybe you don't want to take on the insurance industry. <laughs> <laughs> or what they should be doing is your final uh, thoughts. Uh, maybe that was too big, but uh, anything you'd, you'd want to comment right now, and if insurers figure it to it, go for it. Yeah. Well, just very quickly here, I mean, the, the Blue Cross plan, Care First, I know the leaders there are, they're good people, and they want to cover everyone, And uh, I, but they will play by the rules as the rules are laid out, and I think this, uh, this, this, desire to do experience rating across 10,000 different groups of people is probably not the best way to go. And um, But so as long as they're put in the position of trying to price insurance policies for a group of very sick people, they're going to price them at least to cover their costs. So I think this is a pub, this really is a public policy conversation and we would just expect the insurers to go in the direct just follow the money uh, until we come to the decision if we ever do as a country that a single payer system might be a better idea. All right. Well, on that very interesting note, I want to thank you again, John Chassar uh, from Greater Baltimore Medical Care uh, and also John McDonough, a health policy expert. Uh, treasure for all of us uh, to have both of you uh, on our program today. And I want to thank all our listeners for the robust conversation on the chat. And a reminder, you can download that chat when you get off the show today or you can find it on our website tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, on May 18th, we're going to be talking improvement tools. And guest host Mike Britton, while I'm on vacation, he's going to be talking about seven popular improvement tools. They've bundled them together and, and going to be a fabulous program and on how and when to use them with David Williams and Susan Hanna. That's on May 18th at 2 p.m. And I want to again invite you to check out the archive pages uh, for WIHI where you'll find all the elements of today's program. 
program. You'll also find the audio on iTunes uh, about mid-morning tomorrow. Any questions whatsoever, you can email us at info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future topics. We have a great group who helped make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Jane Rossner, Haley Ladd, Christine Leong, Jameson Case, Stephanie Gary, and Val Weber. And as I always say, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. And sometimes that means we've got to talk about healthcare policy. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon.